Hello and welcome to the Estate Planners Podcast. My name is Anthony Brinkman and this is the place for will writers, estate planners and solicitors that are interested in learning the tips, tools and technicalities to best help their clients. This is episode 19 entitled Clitheroe versus Bond. have today another dive into a bit of case law. This one specifically relating to testamentary capacity and the question of whether the test for capacity remains Banks versus Goodfellow or the Mental Capacity Act of 2005. Now I could, of course, simply give you the answer to that question and you may already know the answer to that question. But it's the details of the case and the way in which the courts will come to their conclusions that I think is always worth putting under the microscope so we can best understand the significance of our role at the time of taking instructions from our clients. So let's get into this. The testator was Jean Clitheroe, born in 1941. She had three children. Deborah, born in 1963, Susan, or Sue, born in 1967, and her youngest child, John, born in 1968. So we have Jean, the mother, we have Deborah, Sue, and John. Deborah died of cancer in 2009, aged 46. She didn't leave a will, and her estate therefore passed to her parents. Her father, and Jean's former husband, agreed to a deed of variation which left Deborah's estate almost entirely to Jean. Jean was deeply affected by Deborah's illness and took to her bed after her death, remaining bedridden until her own death in 2017. Her other daughter, Sue, married a gentleman by the name of Peter Bond in 1999, and they have one child, Charlotte. The youngest child, John, married Zoe in August of 2010, and they have two children. They subsequently divorced in 2015. Jean left two wills, both of them prepared by Powys solicitors. One was dated 21st of May 2010, in which John was appointed the executor and took the residuary estate after some other small bequests of chattels to Sue and Charlotte. The second will was dated on the 3rd of December 2013 and gave gifts of £5,000 to each of the three grandchildren. John again took the residuary estate, therefore entirely in this will disinheriting Sue. Jean gave detailed reasons for the disinheritance of her daughter in a handwritten note. She stated that Sue was, quote, a shopaholic and would just fritter it away, end of quote. An attendance note from the solicitor stated that Jean had said Sue was, quote, a spendthrift and will just spend her inheritance, end quote. Further instructions from Jean make wider allegations against Sue, including lack of contact, Jean's refusal to give Deborah's estate to Charlotte, her spendthrift ways, and an alleged ransacking of Deborah's bungalow after her death, in which Sue was also accused of stealing various items. Jean 
died on the 11th of September 2017, aged 76, leaving an estate worth approximately £350,000. John, as the claimant, puts forward the wills for probate. Sue, as the defendant, disputes their validity on the grounds of lack of testamentary capacity. She states that Jean was suffering from a complex grief reaction from about the time of Deborah's death and that her depression caused insane delusions regarding Sue. Sue asserts that the reasons Jean gave for disinheriting her were false and possibly were even induced by her brother John who knew them to be false and either way to therefore pronounce against the validity of the will such that Jean died intestate. So here is how the wills came about. On the 21st of May 2010, John called to the solicitor's office with a sealed envelope apparently containing Jean's instructions for her will. The chartered legal executive that acted on the wills was Mary Brennan and was assisted by her colleague Charlie Brown. Ms Brennan recorded that John had expressed concern over Jean's health and that she quote, may be suffering from advanced septicemia, end quote, and that the will may need to be signed as quickly as possible. Charlie Brown drafted the will. The note records that the main thing is that she will not wish her daughter to benefit from the will, save for leaving her a Gardner diamond ring. The note then records Ms Brennan speaking to John and noting her concern of no face-to-face -face meeting with Jean and stating, quote, This will is not being set up as it should be. However, we understand from you the urgency of the situation and so this is something of a cleft stick situation. Which, by the way, means a situation that's difficult and likely to cause problems no matter what action is taken. So it is a cleft stick situation in that if we do not prepare the will at all, then there'll doubtless be difficulties. You confirm your mother does not want your sister Susan to benefit greatly from the will as she is so bad with money. John told Ms Brennan that his mother was of sound mind. Ms Brennan arranged for Jean to call by telephone and spoke to her directly, noting that Jean was quote, evidently very clear what you wish to do, end quote. Being very clear about the directions that related to Susan and her reasons for them. That will was drawn up and was collected by John along with directions about its execution. The will was executed later that same day, 21st of May 2010. In Jean's handwritten instructions, she is very clear about John being named as executor and residuary beneficiary, and also about Sue getting the ring that it states she always wanted. Moving forward then to the 2013 will, Jean initially gave instructions by telephone on the 2nd of April 2013. The next day, John brought to the office a note from Jean with her handwritten instructions, which start out by saying, I'm not leaving anything to my daughter because since my son married in 2010, I haven't seen her and she has not let me see my granddaughter, Charlotte. She goes on to state that Susan is a shopaholic and just spends money. She further accuses Susan of wanting to sell or mortgage Deborah's bungalow to send Charlotte to private school and also of helping herself to 
a long list of very specific items. It goes on to say that Susan hasn't done anything for me and as far as she is concerned I could have starved to death. The instructions then go on to give some specific legacies and again for John to be the executor and the residuary beneficiary. Also stating that John has been there for me to get shopping, cook meals etc. With some delays, the will was eventually drawn up and executed on the 3rd of December 2013. So we come to the case itself. The defence made criticisms of the solicitors for the way that both wills had been drawn up, in particular citing John's substantial involvement in the arrangement of the wills. They'd not met the testator face to face, with all the instructions having been provided by letter or by telephone, and there were no identity checks that had been made. Further, that the golden rule had not been followed, despite Jean's age and in ill health. As a reminder, the golden rule is to get a second medical opinion about capacity in cases where there are, in simple terms, doubts about capacity. The judge was actually somewhat sympathetic to the solicitors, particularly in relation to the 2010 will, where it seemed that there was some urgency to the situation and the written instructions from Jean did seem to be believable and based on some rationale and some path of thought that seemed credible. The decision before the court at this time came down to whether Jean was so affected by way of a complex grief reaction or some other condition that led her to insane delusions regarding Sue, so as to invalidate her testamentary capacity. There follows some significant analysis of Jean's character from witnesses, which in summary conclude that Jean was a very strong-willed person and that there were no indications of dementia or any other cognitive impairment. In addition to this evidence, there were over 5,000 pages of medical records and unusually, there were over 30 lever arch folders with supplemental evidence in the form of financial records, Jean's diary, which she kept diligently, and notebooks and scrapbooks that she had kept over many years. Finally, there were witness statements from nine family and friends that the court heard from. In terms of the relevant law, the court had to address two primary areas. Fraudulent calumny, which means an allegation that somebody has poisoned the testator's mind so as to cause them to change their will, and the question of testamentary capacity. First, as to the fraudulent calumny. In its most basic form, Sue asserted that John had poisoned his mother's mind against her. As with any claim of undue influence, the burden of proof lies with the person that is making that claim to prove it, not with the accused to disprove it. Considering the available evidence, the court found that there was insufficient proof that John had so influenced his mother and they dismissed that element of the case. As to testamentary capacity, the court considered the evidence, breaking down Jean's accusations of Sue into nine different segments, including whether Sue was in fact a shopaholic or a spendthrift, whether she had stolen items from her late sister's property, whether she'd falsely accused her father of abuse, which led ultimately to her parents' divorce, and other significant matters that Jean believed to be true. 
detailed examination of the available evidence showed, in summary, that Jean's beliefs were largely unfounded and irrational. With regards to Jean's reaction to the loss of her daughter Deborah, it was found that the impact had been severe and had led to depression and an irrational level of blame directed towards Sue. Significantly, the judge considered the specific times that Jean had made the two wills in 2010 and 2013, and found that whilst there was no dementia or other diagnosed condition, there was sufficient delusion about Sue as to poison her mind and adversely affect her testamentary capacity. The burden of proof in this regard lies with John to prove that his mother did have capacity, and the court was not satisfied that it provided such evidence to support Jean's testamentary capacity, and as such, the wills were not valid, and therefore Jean had died intestate. Then came the first appeal. The grounds for the appeal were focused on the testamentary capacity element of the first decision. There was a detailed and extensive discussion for the first ground of appeal, which was that the Banks versus Goodfellow test had been applied in relation to testamentary capacity, whereas the assertion was that the Mental Capacity Act 2005 test should have been applied. As interesting as that discussion was, in summary, it was found that the Banks test was still applicable and that the Mental Capacity Act had not superseded it. This followed earlier similar decisions where the same had been questioned, namely in the cases of James versus James and also Walker versus Badmin. The second and third grounds for appeal were that if the Banks test was the correct test, then whether the correct interpretation of the word delusion had been used and the correct test applied to that. So, as a reminder, the fourth element of the Banks test is that the will cannot be impacted by any disorder of the mind or any insane delusion. It was put forward that the applied definition had rejected the preferred definition that a delusion is a belief in the existence of something which no rational person could believe and at the same time, it must be shown to be impossible to reason the patient out of that belief. So I'll give you that definition again. A delusion is a belief in the existence of something which no rational person could believe. And at the same time, it must be shown to be impossible to reason the patient out of that belief. The court considered several definitions and applications of the word, and specifically as it may have related to Jean. The other grounds for appeal were on the basis of inadequate or irrational reasons for having preferred Sue's expert witnesses and whether the threshold of proof of lack of capacity had been sufficient, and in short those other grounds were rejected at appeal. So, the only remaining issue was about this point of the correct definition and the correct test for delusion. Whilst that remained inconclusive, the judge encouraged Sue and John to seek alternative mediation to resolve matters and gave them a three-month period of grace to pursue that. However, unfortunately, they were unable to settle matters themselves and the case went to its final stage of appeal. In this final judgment, the conclusion of the court was that whilst there may have been a different test applied for delusion, and that there did not necessarily need to be a fixed element to that delusion, 
But nevertheless, the original conclusion of the court was a correct decision and the wills remained invalid and held therefore that Jean had died intestate. All right. So the primary point, as far as we're concerned as estate planners, is that the correct test for testamentary capacity remains Banks versus Goodfellow. It's been put to the test several times. This is one of the most recent cases and a very thorough analysis was done of that question. And it seems to be holding true, probably from here on out, or at least until there is some other significant review of, of mental capacity as it relates to wills. However, there are a few other key takeaways from this case that I think should be considered. We have, of course, this quite interesting definition of the word delusion. At the end of the day, that Banks versus Goodfellow test, which is incredibly important, of course, to us as estate planners, will writers, solicitors, it includes that word delusion. So some understanding of that word, which has come from this case, is, is interesting and very relevant. But we also have another point, which is, of course, the criticism that was applied to the solicitors in their lack of due diligence at the point of taking instructions for those wills. Whilst the first will in 2010 was made under testing circumstances, there could have been more effort to meet the testator or investigate the circumstances, especially considering the significant involvement of what was, of course, the primary beneficiary. Also, just take a look at the, the depth of investigation, the depth of evidence that the court considered in establishing whether Jean's beliefs about Sue were correct. Nine witness statements from family and friends, thousands of pages of documented evidence, expert witnesses. Now, of course, we as estate planners are not necessarily expected to dig around for evidence about what our clients have stated to us. But think about what you might have been able to do had you been the one taking instructions from Jean on those two occasions. I'm sure you would have wanted to get out to see the client in person. But what if you couldn't? What else could you have done to ensure that she had capacity? If you could have got out to see her and you were satisfied, would you have insisted on applying the golden rule before drafting, particularly considering the potential of imminent death in that occasion? Could you, or would you, have followed up thereafter, once the will had been executed? And what about on that second occasion in 2013? Here we had more substantial written notes detailing Jean's reasons for disinheriting her daughter. But this is now a second opportunity to meet the client and make a more thorough assessment of capacity. How would you do that? Do you specifically have a mental capacity test that you could use under those circumstances? And testing capacity would not necessarily go to the extent of establishing that the reason for Jean's beliefs about Sue were valid. The court, of course, had the benefit of being able to call witnesses and gather substantial evidence to discover that Sue had not, in fact, ransacked the bungalow or stolen what she'd been accused of stealing by Jean or, in fact, being a shopaholic. We don't have the benefit of that nor are we expected to investigate. But what could we do? Could we probe for understanding whilst we're there with the clients? If you were sat with Jean and she had explained all of those accusations, could you perhaps have explored whether she had tried to reconcile with Sue? How had she come to those conclusions? What evidence did she have? You'd need to take a subtle approach to those types of questions. 
But I'm sure that you can see the point I'm making here. If you have a client that is disinheriting a family member, it certainly is within our remit to find out as much as we can about that reason and the logic that has been applied to come to that decision. The client was not, in the end, seen to have any dementia or any other diagnosed impairment of her capacity. So I would imagine that a conversation with her would have been entirely lucid and apparently rational, but not, as the courts found, on this one topic of Sue and her inheritance. All right, I hope you have found that episode useful. I think it calls for another episode at some point which specifically goes into a mental capacity test. I think that would be very worthwhile, so I'll put that on the episodes to come list. In two weeks' time, I shall be attending the Society of Will Writers annual conference, so it will likely be the week after that when the next episode comes out. Until then, I wish you all the best, and thank you for listening. <laughs>